I have a love-hate relationship with preaching through books of the Bible. The reason I preach through books of the Bible is because it takes me to chapters I may not want to preach through. <laughs> Namely, Mark 13. Mark 13, along with its counterparts, <coughs> the other gospel writers, primarily Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 24 and Luke 21, has often been called the Olivet Discourse. Because in these chapters, Jesus gives a sermon, a prophecy, or a prediction, a teaching on the Mount of Olives right outside of Jerusalem. And though you may not know this because of the books you read, or the pastors you hear, or maybe because you, self-conscious about it or not, are picky in the authors or the pastors you read and listen to, this episode in the Gospel is debated (laughs) and controversial. If you have a study guide companion that we put out with along with our series in Mark, you, and if you've read a little bit, you're probably somewhat aware now of how this episode in Jesus' ministry can be interpreted uh, apart from popular interpretations. Big words like eschatology and interpretations all aside, I want to approach this chapter like hopefully how I have approached every sermon in Mark, allowing the scripture to speak for itself. And allowing it to be our guide, and definitely I will not be apologizing or twisting anything in the scripture, hopefully to fit my paradigm or my belief about this text. But by God's grace and his Holy Spirit, may he please destroy any wrong or incorrect views of this text. And if it involves us changing our beliefs about this text, then by all means, Jesus, come and change our beliefs so that they might match up with the truth. With all that being said, I think it would be helpful for the duration of our time in Mark 13 if we had a theme verse that channels our interpretation of these verses. And I put that in your bulletin, and I tend to have it in your bulletin every time we're in Mark 13. And our theme verse is Mark 13, verse verse 30, in which Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, this is at the end of Mark 13, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. I believe that you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and that every word of God is true. But if you believe that and simultaneously hold views that contradict to the truth of this verse in Mark 13.30, or its counterparts in Matthew 24.34 or Luke 21.32, I'm asking you, by the grace of God, to consider what remains true. The very words of Jesus in this verse about what he speaks here, or all the books you may have read, or the pastors who read those books and consequently preach what they have read about this passage. Jesus emphatically states, truly, I say to you, referring to his hearers, namely Peter, James, John, and Andrew, so says Mark 13, verse 3, Jesus then says, This generation, which in order to pressure readers and audiences that perhaps Jesus is speaking about the generation at the end of the world, commentators will say that Jesus is conveniently, and I should say deceptively it would seem, referring to the generation at the end of the world, and not the generation that is contemporary to Jesus and his hearers. That fails when we all agree that Jesus does refer to, very obviously, at the beginning of Mark 13, 
to the destruction of the temple in this passage. And that also in every other occasion when Jesus says those very words, this generation, he does refer to his contemporary generation. Verse references are all in your outlines about that. And so Jesus is saying, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass. In other words, people contemporary of Jesus, James, Peter, Andrew, and John will not die off until what? Until all, how many? All, definite word there in the Greek for the word meaning all, every, all things, the whole, the totality. And Jesus says, all these things that Jesus talks about in this passage will take place within the generation of his speaking it. That is my theme verse because I hope you see that that's directly from the Bible and directly in context to this entire chapter. It's our driving consideration in interpreting all things in these verses. With that being said, why don't we begin today? I just want to take a preface that's not in my notes, so if it comes out jumbled, that's why. <laughs> Another preface is, I know all of you do not agree with me. <laughs> and so, if throughout this series you say, that's wrong, I disagree with them, I would challenge you to at least stay, because we will at least glean some things on what we can agree on. Is that okay? <laughs> Please stand in honor of reading God's word. We'll read the first eight verses, Mark 13. It says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains, of the birth pains. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm in desperate need of your grace. I need you to remind me of the grace found in Jesus Christ, of the holiness and purity that because I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior, that you are at work in me, and that you are at work in these people. Father, we pray to open up our hearts to hear your voice. Father, would you, remove, uh, would you remove anything that might distract us as we hear your word today? Because if we walk away without hearing a word from you, then we have failed in our gathering. So, Father, would you get me out of the way? Would you say what you desire? We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May we see you. <clears throat> See if you've been paying attention any number of weeks here. According to Mark 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. People are saying, Hosanna, which means, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And according to our author Mark, 
That episode ends with Jesus getting off his donkey and doing precisely one thing before he left Jerusalem and returned to his lodgings for that day. And that is Jesus went to the blank and found that the business had already been done for the day. Where did he go? To the temple. To the temple. That's where he went. And in fact, since then, it really has been the temple that has been Jesus' primary concern. Um, If you're probably tired of me reiterating it every week. (laughs) Nevertheless, it is the temple that we must consider as we interpret and read through, it seems, almost every piece of scripture since the beginning of Mark 11. Jesus curses a fig tree, and it is symbolic of the temple that he likewise condemns in the remainder of Mark 11, when she went there with the whip and threw over the tables. Mark 11.20, that the fig tree, symbolic of the temple, quote, withered away to its roots. Jesus in Mark 12 gives a parable instructing the leaders of Israel that Israel is going to be taken away from them and given to new tenants. Jesus spends the majority of Mark 12 debating theology with temple leaders. It climaxes as they discuss who the Messiah is. The traditional view being merely a descendant of David who would champion Israel and reclaim it from conquerors and set up a new Israel. And Jesus challenges them and he says even David called his descendant the Messiah. He called him Lord and Adonai. A term actually often given to God and a title that is definitely superior to David. And unlike what was expected of the Messiah, we see Jesus has not been saying or doing anything to Israel's conquerors or the Romans. But he's actually been challenging, and I would even say, at some sort of war with Israel's leaders. And so I kind of wondered this week, as I was reading this in preparation, hear with me the words of one of Jesus' disciples. None of the Gospel accounts tells us who exactly it is. But first one says, And as Jesus came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And part of me has wondered, Jesus' disciples may be thinking of what they've heard from Jesus. Uh, It's evident in Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus gives three predictions of his upcoming rejection, betrayal, death, and resurrection. And that prediction that Jesus gives has often been met by rejection or confusion on part of Jesus' disciples. Uh, But I wonder, again, this is all speculation on my part, but I wonder if they see that Jesus is not doing anything against the Romans, maybe they begin to wonder if Jesus is going to establish himself as some sort of authority at the temple. Because that's where Jesus' energies have been primarily focused at. And so I wonder, as Jesus leaves, one of the disciples asks him this question, I wonder if they have in the back of their mind this idea, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, as in maybe this will all be ours with the route that you're taking, with your authority, Jesus. That's just a thought I had. We don't know. It could have just been a simple, lone observation with no underlying meanings on the part of the disciple who said it. Because the temple of Herod was a wonderful sight to behold. The temple itself was about 35 acres large, and as for one of my commentary says, for all your football fans, it could accommodate nearly 12 football fields. I'm not saying that that's what they're going to use it for. (laughs) Its circumference nearly being a mile. It was Herod the Great's baby. (laughs) 
It's already had been under construction for actually about 50 years at the time of Jesus. It was still under construction, still unfinished. It was this huge building of excessive opulence, having gold, silver, crimson, purple. Uh, Josephus writes, the outward face of the temple was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared like a mountain covered with snow, and, or excuse me, for as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceedingly white. And something that I've been hammering on, I think almost every sermon since Mark 11, is the central place of culture, religion, and tradition and identity that the temple is for the Jewish mind. Jesus and the disciples were leaving a place that was literally the center of Jewish religion. Their entire lives revolved around pilgrimages to the temple, sacrifices at the temple, and God's presence thought to be primarily at the temple. And though Jesus likely had condemned the temple only a day prior, many believe that what's Mark 13 happens on a Tuesday, and they believe that Jesus condemned the temple on a Monday. Likely it's Tuesday afternoon or evening, and for the average Jew, like Peter, James, and John, or whoever the twelve, the temple was everything. And they're leaving the temple, and boy, King Herod, he gave us a great temple, Jesus. About this temple, Jesus has some choice words. And he says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I mentioned earlier that Jesus, when he talked about the fig tree and how it withered away to its roots, he was symbolically talking about its destruction. One of my commentaries was being cute and says, now Jesus is very concrete in what he's saying about the temple. He's being blatant about uh, the symbolic prediction. And he's saying that King Herod's temple, now think about this, it's not even finished yet. And he says its fate is sealed. And the reason for its fate could not be more understood in Mark's gospel account. Jesus had cursed the fig tree because it was fruitless. Jesus had spoken the parable of the wicked tenants, stating that the tenants were fruitless, which is why the vineyard was being given to someone else. Thus, so it must be with the temple in plain language, as Jesus states, that the temple's end is in sight. It's fruitless. Josephus, writing about the Jewish war that took place about 40 years within the same generation of Jesus' prediction, writes, Caesar ordered the whole city, talking about Jerusalem, and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spots, no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Hmm. Friends, Jesus' words came true. And as Deuteronomy 18 states about the test of a true prophet, <laughs> what Jesus spoke about came to pass in his own generation as he spoke it. As we move from Mark 13.2 to Mark 13.3, many of your Bibles, I'm assuming, might have a heading change. <laughs> My ESV stated in these first two verses were, quote, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. And then as I go to verse 3, another heading appears, signs of the close of the age. If you have a Bible and similar headings, I would strongly encourage you 
to cross out that heading before verse 3. Don't worry, these are well-meaning attempts by your translator, editors, but they're not, Mark did not say, and this now is signs of the end of the age. Mark didn't write that in. It is apparent, as you read Mark 13 in its entirety, without these headings, that it all flows together. <laughs> there is no change in tenses or feelings or environments or plot thoughts, it's all together. And though Jesus talks about the closing of one age and the birth pangs of another, to use this language, the heading can be misleading. Mark 13, 1 through 2 is this simple. Again, Jesus comes out of the temple. A disciple mentions Herod's doing a nice job on the temple. Jesus says it's going to crumble and be destroyed. That's Kevin's lame version of the Bible. But you go on to verse 3. It says, And has Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple? Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Do you see how plain it is that the temple is still the topic of discussion? Mark tells us that Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple. Right? That's the object of discussion. The Mount of Olives would give anybody, a person, a nice big view of this big 12-football field complex. Jesus' inside group who often got the inside scoop. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked privately for a little more info on what? Well, on verse 2, obviously. It's obvious because Mark puts in a pronoun in verse 4. He records, when will these things be, and what are these, what are these things? But these things that the disciples are referring to in a much more private locale than the very... Um, Footsteps of the temple. Um, when they began the conversation about it, and what Jesus just said, namely, not one stone will be left, the raising, the destruction of the temple, added with that question, though, added as to when will this happen, Jesus, they have a desire of what to look for, of what might happen when what. <laughs> what will be the sign when all? When how many? <laughs> When all, same Greek word from Mark 13.30, totality of events that Jesus is talking about, when will all of that be accomplished? So just in case if you're not getting it, here at the beginning, they are asking, when will all, total everything, all of this, when will that be accomplished? When will the temple fall? When will its fate be sealed? When will all of that happen? Jesus gives a huge answer, which we will be studying for the next few weeks. But then comes our theme verse, with which Jesus verifies, as he tells Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Truly I say to you, this generation, the people that we call brothers, dads, sons, and peers, all of our contemporaries, will not pass away until all, how many? <laughs> all these things take place. I don't think any of you are stupid. <laughs> I just want to make abundantly clear that what I preach and teach, I believe, is taken solely from the Word of God, <laughs> based on the Holy Spirit's words through Mark. And the recordings of the disciples asking their question and Jesus answering their question. Because if you and I believe that the Bible is true, and the disciples ask verse 4, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus answers, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. We have to believe that Jesus is not lying. And we have to believe that his answer, the totality of it all, happened in the future for Jesus, within a generation, Thus, in the past for us, does that make sense? I'm not asking if you agree, but do you see my logic? Okay, let's move on. Jesus began to say to them, 
See that no one leads you astray. Note the responsibility of Jesus' hearers. The word, see, is that same word as last week if you were here when Jesus was saying, beware of the scribes. That word, beware, is the same word here, see. And it's this word that means to perceive or to discern. It's what Jesus is saying to his hearers. Spiritually discern, see the motivations that no one leads you astray. Leads, you, leads them astray how? Jesus continues. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. First, generally, from these two verses, it seems to me that Jesus warns of not being led astray by a imposters of Jesus whether it be of Jesus personally or of being a minister of Jesus, and secondly, uh, being led astray of whatever, whatever Jesus sees as the end being near. He says, don't be alarmed at the magnitude of the wars. It's not the end yet. That's what the verse says. I want to come back to verse 5. Jesus lays the responsibility of not being led astray on the hearers. You and I have the responsibility to spiritually discern what we intake. The best way that we can discern and not be led astray is to know our Bible (laughs) and to know our Bible above all other teachers and books. And it is to have and pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us (laughs) and us being obedient to what he says and his guiding in our lives. Jesus says to his hearers in the present tense, I should say, so it having immediate implications for Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, that many will come in my name, says Jesus, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. A simple skimming through the rest of your New Testament testify to this. (laughs) A few places I will emphasize for you. Peter, a hearer of Jesus here, writes in 2 Peter 2 about false prophets and false teachers. John, another one present for the, this discourse, writes in 1 John 2, 18 through 19. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard the anti, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Again, in John's fourth chapter of his letter, John also says, Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Paul, a disciple who says he's abnormally born, talks about in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, that there are ministers of, quote, another Jesus and another gospel, talking about people, false prophets. It seems to me that the disciples of Jesus took heed to Jesus' word and themselves warned their own peers about the antichrists and false prophets that were rising up in their own day. We read one account in Acts chapter 8. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the last to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. The book of Acts would continue, and it seems to imply that he converted 
to Jesus, but history tells us that he backslid, he fell from grace, and started making rather blasphemous remarks about being the Son of God. <laughs> Church uh, Father Justin Martyr records that after being cast out by the apostles, Simon went to Rome and told people that he was he who appeared among the Jews as the Son, he appeared in Samaria as the Father, among other nations as the Holy Spirit, and he continued to practice magic, and many regarded him as a god and honored him with a statue. History tells us of one guy named Theudas who boasted of many signs, one of which being the supposed ability to part the Jordan River. According to Josephus, he led many astray. Josephus also mentions an Egyptian who claimed to be a prophet. That's also in your Bible and Acts. I have it on your outlines. He likewise succeeded in deceiving many in the population. Another zealot leader named Menahem laid siege to the palace in 66 A.D., I've listed several in your outline of people who claim to be messiahs in the time frame that Jesus is talking about. But the truth is, as it was in Jesus' time, so it is in our time. I dare you to Google Christian Messiah claimants. You will see there's a dime a dozen every generation, including our own. But Jesus, in talking about the fall of the temple, told his listeners that many would claim to be the messiah. But then Jesus also said... And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. History tells us that the Roman Emperor Caligula in the year 40 AD, so it could have been within the decade after Jesus said these words, Caligula attempted to erect a statue of himself in the temple at Jerusalem. As you might imagine, <laughs> there are a lot of people who didn't like that idea. Josephus, I believe the words he uses are most translated is there are reports of war circulating because of this bold and non-respectful maneuver on Caligula's part. They turned out to be only that, reports of war, in 40 AD. However, 25 years later, in 66 AD, the Jewish war broke out, ending in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I want us to go back to that verse, though. Let's not look at Jesus' words, does history fulfill this now, but let's look at it as, what did Jesus say, sort of way. <laughs> Point being, Jesus says to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, what? Be afraid that the world is ending? Or question how long it is until Jesus comes back? <laughs> Friends, listen to this. For Peter, James, John, and Andrew, in the time they lived... They were in a conquered nation of a conquered race under the Roman Empire. The world that mattered to them was owned by Rome. For them, it was a one-world nation. And Rome was not the best world leader. <laughs> Rome's leaders were not the best towards Christians in the first century of Christianity. And so sometimes we think, oh, America is secularizing and ISIS kills Christians and the world is grim and dark. Jesus must be coming back. I'm not saying that I disagree with the sad state of affairs in our world now. But we haven't sent, been sent to the Colosseum yet. Has the White House outlawed Christianity yet? Is every nation in the world against Christianity? Do not non-Christians also call out ISIS for their terrorism? My point is, is contrary to the common belief, I think held by many Christians, namely, lots of wars equals end of the world, Listen to Jesus' words, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, disturbed, troubled, 
thrown into confusion, other definitions of, of that word. Dean says it a lot in Sunday school. Sometimes we look around and we act surprised. <laughs> and when there is no need to be surprised if we read our Bible. Why? People are sinful. <laughs> it should not surprise us. People have needed a Savior since Adam, and every person until Jesus comes back needs a Savior. Jesus is saying, wars will happen, do not be alarmed, that is human nature. That doesn't mean anything on the time scale other than the fact people are doing what they do, they war. Jesus says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Listen closely, listen closely here. This must take place, and listen to this, but the end is not yet. What end is Jesus talking about? The actual Greek word used means purpose or event or principal end. If we want to take the context of this entire chapter, and if we want to remember Mark 13, verse 4, where Jesus' hearers ask Jesus about what will happen. When Mark 13, 2, the destruction of the temple will happen. And if we want to believe that Jesus is not being an ambiguous, clever wordsmith, but answering their question outright, culminating in Mark 13, 30, all these things will happen to this generation. Then the word end here in Mark 13, 7 is the end of their question, the issue or the events that they asked about what they are talking about, namely the fall of the temple. Now, is it ruled out that it surely does not mean end as an end of the world? <laughs> if you want to take that interpretation, feel free to. But it would seem most reasonable to me, why would the disciples ask, when will the temple fall? And then Jesus say, that's a nice question, let me tell you about the end of the world. <laughs> knowing full well that the temple fell before the generation passed, and meanwhile the end of the world did not come before the generation passed. Jesus would be a false prophet, if, if that's what he was referring to. We end our study in verse 8, the first part saying, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Guess what we're going to do? <laughs> Tacitus begins his book, History. He's writing in A.D. 68. And with a prologue, he's talking about Nero's empire before Nero's suicide and how wars broke out in all the ends of the empire. Quote, he says, The history of which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible in battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. I believe that was even an 18-month span. <laughs> There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. You can see a much longer quote on your outline. How about earthquakes? Meanwhile, there were earthquakes in Crete in 46 AD, 51, Rome, Laodicea in 60, Phrygia and Philippi in 61, Pompeii in 63, Jerusalem in 67, not to mention the earthquake in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death, Matthew 27, 51, and a separate earthquake recorded in Matthew 28, verse 2, when Jesus resurrected, or the earthquake when Paul and Silas were in prison in Acts 16. History tells us as well that during the reigns of Claudius and Nero, years 41 to 68, famines were widespread. Acts 11, 27 through 28 tells us of one. It says, Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, 
And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold in the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Hmm. I should say that common sense also tells us that when earthquakes happen, they easily disrupt travel and trade in that society, which could bring about famine as well. So wars, earthquakes, famines, yet Jesus said in verse 7, the end is not yet, and ends in verse 8, these are but the beginning of birth pains, of the birth pains. I want us to take a step back again from the factual table, and let's look at not the fulfillment of what Jesus says, but what did Jesus say of what he said. Jesus said that the disciples... Their generation is about to enter into a time of great war, of empires, earthquakes, famines, false messiahs. You read through the rest of Mark 13 in the book of Acts, you realize it doesn't end there. Also persecutions, false accusations, betrayals, mock trials, beatings, a really bad, bad, bad time for the disciples that ends up in most of them for martyrdom. And it's going to culminate, Jesus says, in the destruction of the temple. And now it seems to me that someone or something did not want Christ's ministry to remain standing after his death and resurrection. It seems to me that the world was acting against Jesus' disciples, against Jesus' message. But friends, that dark, dark world of earthquakes, famines, beatings, betrayals, evil empires, it is in that dark world that the beginning of birth pains took place. That the church's birth pains and tribulation, I would say, validated its existence rather than annihilated its existence. Friends, you realize this, that if Christianity was not true, I don't think it should have survived or persisted the first century. Christian, I mean, who says, oh, everybody hates us, I'm going to keep believing it, even though it's a lie. No, they believed it. It was not a lie. Christianity was born under persecution. See, the enemy thought he won when Jesus, the very week Jesus is giving this prophecy, the enemy thought he won when Jesus went to the cross and died. The enemy thought he won, but Jesus rose again. And so the, the enemy has many to do his biddings. But Christ's true church survives everything from imposters to false prophets to persecutions against Christians to the entire Roman Empire devastating the birthplace of Christianity, Jerusalem. So what can we take away from this? All interpretations, eschatology, and all that aside, what can we practically take away from this? It's this. It's the words of Jesus that I think are very relevant to us today. I hear so many Christians, myself included, who respond to every news event, well, if God's not coming back soon, or it's definitely a sign of the times that this happened. And Jesus said to his disciples in these words, these disciples who are about to face, as you read Acts, trials and tribulations that I don't think any of us could shake a stick at, Jesus says a few things in this passage that I think can really help us in application today. First of all, see that no one leads you astray. Second of all, and when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Third of all, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Friends, don't be led astray. Jesus says to scribes a few chapters back, Mark 8:12, Why does this generation seek for a sign? 
And then in the synoptic counterpart story in Matthew 12, 39, Jesus actually says, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The point being is that Jesus looks for faith and trust in him. Doubting sinners look for signs and wonders. Jesus looks for faith and trust in him. Secondly, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. The end is not yet. See, Jesus exhorts over and over to just not be ready when the end is near, but to always be ready. So when the end is near, you are ready. You hear that? Jesus is encouraging his disciples to be disciples no matter the cost, no matter the season. I have a challenge for you the next time you watch news and get disgusted and you sigh in fear. Well, the world's probably going to end. Instead, I challenge you to pray for what you just saw. I challenge you to pray and hope that God would redeem it. Not say, it's hopeless, Jesus comes back, please. But to say, Jesus, you're a redeemer, not a plug puller. And that's Jesus' third point. He says to his disciples, after giving them the bad news of wars, quakes, and famines, he says, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is the beginning, (laughs) not the end. It's not over yet. I thought wars, famines, and quakes were signs of destruction and ending, but Jesus says they are birth pains. It was was birth pains for Jesus' church which though it experienced turmoil on every side, it survived and thrived and exploded to what it is today. And friends, I have to tell you, if you think the world is closing in on Christianity in every avenue, I dare say look with hopefulness and excitement, because Jesus has something up his sleeve. Friends, we serve a God who could take the very death of his son and use it to redeem the world. We serve a God who can and does and will redeem Friends, do you need a redeemer today? What are you going through? I pray and hope it's not wars, false prophets, earthquakes, famines. (laughs) But take hope in this, that if God can preserve his believers and his truth throughout all of that, he can redeem your situation today. He can redeem it. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes as we enter into a time of prayer. And I just feel it's appropriate to read the word of God to start a prayer today. So go ahead. Bow your heads and hear the word of truth. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. Father, we thank you for preserving your church through what had to be a most horrific time for your first disciples. Father, many of us watch with worry the world around us. Father, as you blessed and preserved your saints through that first generation, we ask for your continual hand of grace and love and protection. Father, as we say, be a shield around us. Father, we pray that you would inspire us with passion to invite those into the kingdom of God around us. Father, you planted us here for a reason. Help us to live out that reason. Give us grace to continue to move forward. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for your protection, for your love, your perseverance. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Christ and King. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.